Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I am Marilyn Ritchie and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Jason and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussion. I am Marilyn Ritchie, and it's great to be back to host episode seven, our eighth episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Jason Moore, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stoffer. Jason, what have you been up to since our last recording? Hi, Marilyn. I'm Michael. It's uh, great to be back with you for this episode, and you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about phenotype mining, and this is kind of a new area for me. And as I think I mentioned on the podcast when we discussed this, this is a, an area I'm getting really interested in. And so I've been thinking about it a lot and decided to write an R01 on phenotype mining uh, for the June NIH deadline. And uh, Marilyn teamed up with you to, to work on this since you know a lot about this area. And I, I think we've come up with a really exciting proposal focusing on developing and evaluating new machine learning algorithms for defining more accurate phenotypes and electronic health record data. So anyway, we'll see how it does. I'm excited about it. and. Uh, Hope it gets funded because I would love to work on this project. And then while we were working on this grant, um, you know, I, I realized that there's very little in the literature about phenotype mining because this is such a new hot area. So uh, decided to draft an editorial. Um, and Marilyn, you're in your hands now for uh, editing, but um, hoping to submit an editorial on phenotype mining in the next week or so. Um, just sort of going through the definitions and concepts and laying it out so that others can, can benefit from the hard work that we've done to define phenotype mining in this grant application. And, uh, you know, I've, of course, been busy with a gazillion uh, meetings and COVID-related stuff, so I'm not going to get into that this time. I think we covered a lot of that on the last podcast, but um, one of the things I've noticed since I've been working from home, and it's been over two months now working from home, um, is that I'm feeling more creative. And I hate to mention this because I know a lot of you out there are struggling during this time with especially those of you that have small children. There are a lot of distractions in your lives and it's a, a very difficult time for a lot of people. And I know a lot of scientists are, um, you know, having a hard time adjusting to this new reality. And, but, you know, I'm in the fortunate situation to have kids that are older and don't need as much attention. And to be honest, getting a good night's sleep every night and, and not rushing around and commuting and all that stuff, I've been feeling more creative. And I've had a lot of research ideas 
uh, I think this phenotype mining grant that we wrote was a good example of that. I had a lot of great ideas for that grant and I've been trying to get as much of that down on paper and take advantage of it uh, during this time. So I've, I've actually been really enjoying this time at home because of the, the creativity and um, uh, it's, it's sort of made me think back to the hectic um, at work lifestyle and wondering you know, what have I been missing uh, during that time and not living up to my full creative uh, potential? So anyway, that's uh, what I've been up to. Marilyn, how about you? Yeah, I have to say I'm experiencing the same thing. I, I hesitate to say it as well because I know so many people are having a really hard time juggling all of the duties. But as you know, I also have older kids, you know, a fifth grader and an eighth grader. And so, yes, there's a lot of work to do with their homeschooling, but they're pretty independent with that. Um, in addition, my husband is a stay-at-home dad. So when they do need help, he does a lot of that. So even though I do feel like I'm working more hours than I normally do because that commute time is gone. And so instead I'm like at the computer during the time that I would have been in the car listening to a book or talking on the phone or listening to a podcast, that is allotting me more time to be creative and brainstorm about new project ideas and come up with some new methods ideas and some kind of directions that I've wanted to go in and just haven't been able to fit in the time to think. Like I, I've caught myself, especially as the weather's been nicer, sitting on my deck with a notebook instead of a computer and a pen and sketching out you know, figures and jotting down bulleted ideas of things I want to work on instead of like the constant, I've got to answer this email, I got to do this thing on the computer. Like it's amazing what paper and pen will do to just allow your brain to be creative and think a little bit. So I'm glad I found some of that time. Um, I also have been working on a lot of writing. You know, it's, it's interesting. This is something that we might want to talk about this more offline later, but there was an article recently that during this COVID pandemic, the journal editors are anecdotally noticing fewer submissions from women than from men it, than they usually get. And you and I are journal editors for biodata mining. And I was thinking maybe we should take a look even at our own journal and see, like actually put some data science behind this anecdotal question. I myself have done far more writing editing and submitting of papers in the last two months than I have in, I think in the previous six. I mean, so the anecdotal evidence that women are not publishing or submitting very much, like my N of one is the opposite of that. I cannot believe how many papers I have in peer review right now. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be braggy. I just, that article made me think, wait a minute, like what I, that it just didn't feel right to me because a lot of the first authors of my papers are female. It's the female students in my lab, the female postdocs in my lab, and then myself. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of writing, but I've also been thinking, I, w I wonder if we could, could maybe put some data science behind that, uh, that question because I, I do wonder whether that's true or whether that was just, you know, a couple of editors noticing something and it got big media attention because people get you know, uh, excited about gender disparities um, and talking about them. Uh, the last thing I've been working on grants too, the one with you, I also am working on a couple of collaborative grants that are due later in June. Um, also thinking about one of these uh, COVID R01 grants um, 
I'm going to reach out to them. You know, there's this RFA for COVID R01s and COVID R21s. It's a rolling submission deadline, which is the blessing and a curse because you have no deadline, which means you kind of could keep like pushing it back. But uh, I thought I'd work on it after the, the June deadline. Um, and I'm going to reach out to them and see, you know, there is a data science aspect in the RFA. And I'm curious if they're really interested in informatics and data science projects as part of this RFA. And uh, so that's what I'm, I'm spending some time during my thinking about, you know, how can I take some of the informatics things that we've been doing around COVID and apply for this particular RFA. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you're listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org. You can leave feedback at feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at bmirpodcast, and of course on our Facebook page. Be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. The reviews help us improve the podcast, but also in help. Uh, improve our visibility. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is the pros and cons of participating in large research consortia. Marilyn will introduce the topic. Thanks, Jason. So much of informatics and biomedical science has been inundated with consortia over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years or so. Uh, I, I've certainly seen a lot in my own experience with EHR data sharing, genetics and genomics data sharing, epidemiological and public health data, etc. And it's now very common and really easy to get involved in one or more consortia, depending on what area of interest you work in. But I certainly get asked a lot by junior faculty or postdocs and sometimes even students should I get involved in consortia? And so um, I think it, it's a good topic to just kind of talk through what the pros and cons are. I don't think it's a, a, an easy binary answer, should you or not. I think there are definitely some reasons why it's a great idea, and there are some reasons why it's a bad idea, and it's important to weigh those in your decision, I think, each time. So I'll start with the pros or the reasons that I think it is useful to get involved in a consortia. Uh, one, it, it's a great way to get access to data, um, and in particular, early access. In most of the consortia, certainly that I've been involved with, part of it is aggregating very large data sets. And sometimes it's the individual level data, sometimes it's the uh, metadata or summary statistics, but in general, the data get aggregated and then analyzed by the consortia and then released to the public. And so if you're a member of the consortia, you get early access to those data and get to do some of the early analyses. And so that definitely can be a benefit. Um, I guess in addition to that, the second reason is that you do get access to very large and well statistically powered data sets. Part of the reason people have gotten so excited about consortia is that this data aggregation effort leads to large sample sizes. And when you have large sample sizes, you have more statistical power. So for that reason, it can be a good thing. You get access to the data, but also it's much larger data than what you would have on your own you know, at a single institution. 
especially for junior faculty and for postdocs or trainees, it's a great opportunity for networking across the scientific community. Um, a lot of the consortia are national and some are international. And if you actively participate, it's a great way to get your name out there and start to interact with and know scientists at many levels and at many different institutions. So it can be a, a great thing for your career development and kind of future opportunities. Uh, number four, many consortia publish very high impact papers. And by having co-authorship on these papers, it can be uh, a good thing for your CV and it can look, um, look like you're being productive and you are being productive. Um, and in particular, I think these papers are high impact because the sample sizes are so large. And so they are able to, to have interesting discoveries and get into those higher impact journals. Uh, a lot of consortia also publish a large number of manuscripts. So because there is a broad diversity of the membership of consortia, that means there's a large number of projects that can be done and kind of side projects, uh, a lot of different interests and a lot of people. And so um, the ones that work well, there's usually a lot of publications because there are kind of lots of different kind of sub analyses that lead to subsequent papers, even off of that kind of main initial discovery paper. Um, and so again, that can be good for the CV. Um, and number six is that leadership opportunities can emerge from consortia. So one of the things on our CVs that uh, we get evaluated on are when we have shown leadership. And in a consortia, you could lead a writing group, you could lead a working group, um, you can lead a committee. So there's lots of opportunities where you can kind of get some practice and demonstrate your leadership skills. And then uh, the last one that I thought of is service opportunities. So related to that, even not necessarily leading a committee, but participation in some of those working groups and committees can be listed on your CV as providing service to the scientific community, which is again, something that we are judged on whenever we go up for promotions. So those are some of the, the pros or the benefits, I think, to participating in consortia. Um, some of the cons or the, the things that I think it's also important to consider. Um, number one, consortia can take up a lot of time, especially if you take on one of those leadership roles that I just talked about. Um, it, it's a lot of organizational effort to um, get all of the data aggregated, to make sure that the data are cleaned and organized, to make sure that the data use agreements have been signed and everybody that's participating has been consented in the right way. Um, or unless, if it's a study that doesn't involve consent, that you just, you have all the ducks in a row in terms of um, governance around the data that you're aggregating and the usage of the data and sharing of the data. Um, and then also just if you are leading kind of one of the analysis groups or a group that's developing the software and algorithms, it just takes a lot of time to get coordinated and get to consensus on what people are doing. And so that leads to number two, it's many many, many conference calls. Um, I've been involved in a lot of consortia over the last 15 years. And I, 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 I would, oh gosh, I, I think I'd cry if I looked at how many hours I've spent on conference calls over the past decade. Um, so I'm not gonna look back at my calendar and I'm not gonna count that because I don't wanna know. It's a lot of conference calls. Um, many of them are really needed because it takes a lot of effort to organize groups. If you try to just rely on 
other technology like email or Google Docs, people just don't respond. And even on calls, sometimes people are very quiet, but at least if they're on a call, you could start to call people out by name and say, you know, do you agree with this? Or when are you gonna send that? And so the calls do become very important. Um, number three, and this is in particular for the junior people, uh, you could spend a lot of time and not get a lot out of it other than middle authorship, unless you are very assertive and volunteer to take leadership roles. I have seen a lot of people who participate passively on conference calls week after week after week. They kind of, you know, every once in a while make a modest suggestion. And then in the end, they are author number, you know, 250 out of 500. And that's what they got out of spending an hour every single week for two years on a conference call. And in particular for a junior scientist, I'm just not sure that's the best use of their time. If, however, they took on a leadership role, they led the writing group, and they were, you know, one of five first starred first authors on this paper at a high profile journal, that could become worth it. So that's kind of the way to think about that time commitment. You know, if you're going to make the, the time and the effort, make it worth it. it otherwise, you've spent a lot of time and you just kind of end up with this paper that you won't really get credit for if you're kind of in the sea of hundreds of authors. I guess related to publishing, number four, you may lose the opportunity to publish your specific work as a single institution. I've definitely seen this happen in some consortia that I've been in that when you sign up, you agree that you will not publish your data until after the network paper or the consortia paper comes out. And so um, I know a lot of groups and, and in some of the ones that I've been involved with, we have not joined the consortia until we published our site specific paper. Because once you sign the, the data sharing agreement, you can't publish your paper. Um, every consortium is different. Some don't have this uh, criteria, but some do. And so it's definitely an important thing to think about when you're signing up. You know, if you are on a tenure clock and you need to publish, you don't want to give up your opportunity to publish your data. You need to publish your data for your CV and then participate in the consortium. Uh, number five. I think it can be difficult to do more kind of innovative or out of the box methodologies in consortia. You know, I mentioned earlier that part of the, the time consuming part in the conference calls is getting to consensus. So if you have a, a consortia that has 15 or 20 groups from around the world and you've all combined your data, you need to decide how you're gonna do the analyses as a group and get to consensus on that. And so what that often means is that you go with pretty vanilla methods that are kind of the standard kind of, you know, general, the way everybody does it because that's what everybody feels comfortable with. And so as soon as you wanna do something that's a little more wacky or out of the box, some of the groups get uncomfortable. And so it could just become more challenging to do those things. When I've seen them work, they're like subgroups and sub projects that happen later and I mean, you really just have to want to do it in order to wait that long to do your innovative thing. Um, the next one, I think some papers I've seen, it can take a lot longer to publish them because there are a lot of steps in the process of getting reviews. So first you have a lot of authors. So they all need to review the paper. That's a journal requirement. You know, before papers get submitted, all authors have to sign off, which means 
if you're one of the leads, you have to track down all those people and make sure they've read it, or at least they've signed off and said they've read it. A lot of them then have publication committee, committees that have to review it. Sometimes there's data access committees that also have to review them. So there's just sometimes a lot more hoops to jump through to get a paper published. And then the last one that I thought of is there can be a sense of, of peer pressure to participate or, or even a FOMO, like a fear of missing out on participating. So if a lot of other key kind of leading institutions or leading researchers in your area are doing it, there can be the sense of, well, I really should do it too because they're all doing it. And, and if I don't share my data, like I'm gonna have a hard, hard time publishing my data because all the other groups are part of the consortia and why are you not in the consortia? Why is your data not in the consortia? So there was definitely kind of this peer pressure that especially for junior faculty, I think can be really challenging because it is important that they publish that they publish as first or senior author, at least in our field, first or senior author is what matters. And if you feel the pressure that you have to put your data into the consortia, but you don't get the opportunity to be first or last, like, yes, you'll get a paper, but it won't, quote unquote, count as one of your key papers that you need for tenure and promotion. And so, um, so I think it's just important to really think through and weigh those pros and cons to make those decisions. I mean, as I said at the beginning of this, I, I participate in a lot of them. I have in the past, I continue to because in a lot of situations for me personally, the benefits have outweighed the negative consequences, but um, there are some consortia that I have declined participating in because in some situations, the negatives outweigh the positives. So I, my advice to the faculty and, and trainees is to kind of think about the pros and cons of each unique opportunity and make that decision. I don't know, Jason, I'm sure you have some thoughts about this as well. Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. That was a really, really great overview. I think this is a very timely topic given all of the COVID-19 data sharing consortia that are popping up right now and we're all getting dragged into them whether we like it or not. And, um, you know, I, uh, as you know, Marilyn, I, I've been a professor for over 20 years and early in my career decided not to participate largely in consortia. And I, you know, there were a couple of reasons for that. First, you know, I'm a methodologist. So um, that's what really drives me. That's what my research program is mostly about. And consortia really aren't about developing new methods. They're about applying, uh, you know, standard methods to very large aggregated data sets. And so from that point of view, uh, the consortia really didn't interest me too much because I was wanting to develop methods. And uh, there really wasn't a way for me to fit into the consortia. Um, and also philosophically, um, I think, you know, I've always had a scientific issue with consortia because of the data aggregation aspect to them. And I'm at, you know, I'm a machine learning guy and I'm interested in identifying patient subsets and heterogeneity and interactions among, among variables, among features. And you know, consortia about aggregating data from different populations and and different studies and uh, and looking at um, you know average effects across all of those studies. And I don't know, just from an intellectual point of view, it just didn't seem all that interesting to me when I thought the interesting biomarker effects would be in the subsets, not in in the uh, aggregate. So. Uh, philosophically, um, scientifically, 
the consortium model just didn't uh, interest me too much. And I guess in general, the cons that you mentioned kind of in my head outweighed a lot of the pros. And so um, I really haven't uh, participated in, in many consortia in my career. Um, I'm, of course, actively engaged now in COVID consortia because it's a huge public health crisis and we all need to chip in. And so I felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, but when I have the option, um, I generally opt out. Um, I did participate in one GWAS consortium earlier in my career. And to be honest, was really turned off by the experience. And anytime I wanted to bring up um, innovative ways to look at the data or things we might want to consider, uh, I was pretty quickly shut up by the organizers of the consortium who just wanted to apply a cookie cutter uh, formulaic approach to the data analysis and be done with it, publish the papers and move on. And, you know, and so scientifically that just wasn't very interesting or rewarding to me. So it was kind of a bad experience. And, and so I dipped, dipped my toe in the water once and uh, never, never did again. Um, and I'll just add a couple couple more thoughts to the pros and cons that you listed. You know, one of the concerns, I think, for junior faculty participating in consortia is how are promotion and tenure committees going to weigh these publications with many, many authors? If you're uh, somewhere in the middle on an author list of 50, 100, 200 authors, you know, how's a promotion and tenure committee supposed to weigh that? What was your contribution? Is this really an intellectual contribution. Um, so that's something that I think junior people and trainees need to keep in mind. And, and, I, and I think these discussions do happen on promotion and tenure committees, especially when most of your papers or many of your papers are these consortia papers. It's really hard to figure out what your contribution was. Um, and I think one of my other big criticisms of consortia was the as you mentioned, Marilyn, it takes a lot of time. And it's usually the junior people who end up spending most of the time. The senior people skip a lot of the required calls because they're busy and have other obligations. And it's the junior people who typically don't have as many obligations that end up sitting on the calls. And I just think that's um, a bad place to, to put junior people when they should be writing grants, writing papers, Form, forming their ideas instead of doing the busy work, um, you know, of, of scientific consortia. It should be the PIs that do the busy work. I mean, the, you know, the planning, the decision making, the, uh, you know, the, the work that's done on the call should be done by senior people, not junior people. Um, I also had an example recently I'll share um, where I wanted to use some data that was generated by a consortium and we applied and got access to the data, wrote a paper, the paper got reviewed by the consortium, which was a requirement for using the data. And then one of the investigators on the consortium came back and said, well, you can't, you can't report results for this one particular gene. We were doing a, a genome-wide association analysis and uh, the consortium came back and said, Basically, thou shall not publish on this particular gene because one of the consortium investigators um, was getting ready to write a paper on that gene. Well, that was a bit unethical, in my opinion, because the data was made publicly available. We applied for the data. We got access to the data. And uh, I don't remember in any of the documents there being a stipulation that a particular 
consortium investigator could veto a particular gene in a data set that seemed a really, really outrageous to me. But anyway, those are the kinds of things that can happen um, in, in consortium. Um, so I, I think there, I'm sounding pretty negative, but I, I agree with all your pros, Marilyn. I think there are a lot of um, really, really good reasons to participate in consortia. Uh, and for me personally, the cons in many cases have outweighed uh, the pros. And and I'll just say one more thing uh, and turn it back over to you, Marilyn. Um, uh, you know, the 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 GWAS consortium model is really becoming antiquated. That you know, we're now in the era of the UK Biobank with 500,000 subjects, and it used to be that you had to form a consortium to get a sample size that was necessary to pick up a very small genetic effect. Well, you don't have to participate in a consortium anymore. You can fill out a, an application, sign a data use agreement, get IRB approval and get access to the UK Biobank, which has an enormous sample size and vast quantities of data that you can analyze and get the same power that five, 10 years ago you got from one of these uh, data sharing consortiums. So the consortium model is a, a bit obsolete in some ways, at least, in with respect to GWAS. Yeah, thanks for sharing your thoughts on this, Jason. I knew you would have some because I know uh, I would probably cry even harder if I compare the number of hours I've spent on conference calls compared to yours because I know that mine is orders of magnitude more than yours. Um, but but as I said, you know. Well, let me let me let me just say that pre pre COVID. I would say the first 20 years of my career, the number of hours I spent on consortium conference calls was probably less than 10 hours total in 20 years. And I probably spent more than 10 hours each month for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, clearly I felt like there were more benefits than negatives, but, um, but I, as I said earlier, I think, you know, for all of those junior folks or even senior folks, you know, just think about it before you commit to it. I certainly try to limit the number of them that I'm on at any one time, because that is the other thing. You could sign up for so many that your entire 40 hours or 60 hours a week is spent on conference calls. So just be thoughtful about which ones you get involved with. Hi, my name is Chris Shute, the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor in Health Informatics and Chief Research Information Officer at Johns Hopkins University. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast with Jason and Marilyn. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Jason, why don't you go first? Okay, thanks, Marilyn. Uh, we have a number of news items uh, today. The first is a piece that appeared in the Irish Times, uh, and this caught my eye because it's written by our own uh, Dr. Garrett Fitzgerald here at Penn. And the title is Rigor Science Rather Than Speeds Matters Most in the Race for a COVID-19 Cure. And I'm just going to read a couple short paragraphs from this piece because I think he makes some really good points and, and touches on some things that have certainly concerned me about the rush to get COVID science out there into the community. So Garrett says, uh, and I quote, 
The scientific community has been mobilized internationally to address the crisis that is COVID-19. However, given the pressing circumstances, many papers have been rushed into print, thus creating uninformative and distracting noise. Speed is no substitute for science. At present, we are encouraged by the diversified approaches being taken to the development of vaccines, but the air is thick with promissory notes and dates of delivery. This is absurd. Who can know when a vaccine will have been shown safely to confer protection? Despite the headlines, we are in the early stages of assessing the tolerability, not the effectiveness of vaccines. That comes next and must be subject to rigorous scientific evaluation. Once those criteria are satisfied, we can turn to the challenge of scale-up and democratization of access to an intervention that may bring this crisis under control. So there have been several pieces like this, um, and I thought it was important to highlight one of them just just because everybody's rushing so much COVID-related stuff out there, and there is a growing concern about the quality of of what's being uh, what's being published and what's being discussed uh, in the media. And we touched on this uh, a little bit last time. Okay, moving on. Uh, last time we discussed ideas uh, for how informaticians can get involved with COVID-19 research. And I think we mentioned that we were working on an editorial on this topic. And I just wanted to mention that the editorial was just published in the journal Biodata Mining, and we'll have a link in the show notes to it. Great. Uh, there's an article that we'll have a link to in the show notes that is in Forbes. It reports that Twitter announced that they are making working from home permanent for those who choose to do so. They go on to say that employees can choose to return to the office or continue working from home forever if they're able. San Francisco-based Twitter said it won't open up its offices before September and will continue to ban business travel and in-person company events for the rest of the year. Twitter has already taken actions before the pandemic to decrease its presence in San Francisco by becoming a more distributed workforce. Um, According to NPR, and we can also put this link in the show notes, Google has also announced that its staff will work from home through the end of the year. Um, I found these articles fascinating and telling that these are, you know, two big uh, data and informatics companies are going to be working from home. It'll be interesting to watch over the next several months how many other companies do something similar and you know, if people can work from home, companies can save a lot of money on the rental and fees that they pay with office spaces. So I think this is something we'll have to watch out for in the future. Yeah, this these news stories really interested me. And I, I think we had seen before COVID that uh, there was a trend toward companies allowing their employees to work more from home. And uh, now that's on steroids with the pandemic firmly in place. And I I really think we're going to see this become the norm rather than the exception in the uh, post-pandemic world. And it'll be interesting to see how much of this percolates into academia and and whether this will be the new norm in academia. Um, I kind of think so, Um, especially for those of us that are informaticians or data scientists or biostatisticians uh, who you know, we can do most of our work from home. Um, so I'm, I'm perfectly happy to take uh, Twitter's lead and we'll see how much our institutions uh, embrace that. 
Yeah, Jason, I wondered the same thing about academia because, I mean, I'm sure this is the case in other industries, but the lens that I look at the world through is academia and space is a premium, right? We are always out of space. And so it, the thought has crossed my mind, like, is it advantageous for universities to have the informatics people predominantly work from home? Because that frees up some office space that could be used for other things. Might not need to build any more new buildings at universities, right? Uh, you can That's right. be more like the, uh, the cost share model of condos. You know, you, you, you have an office that you share with a couple other people and maybe you have your day a week when you come into the office and otherwise you work from home. We'll see, keep an eye on this space. Okay, moving on. Uh, I recently learned about the Epic Health Research Network, or EHRN, that is studying COVID-19 using data shared from multiple health systems around the US. Now, in some ways, uh, Epic is an ideal aggregator of data, given that they developed a, a very sophisticated database uh, for the Epic electronic health record which many of our healthcare organizations now use. And so when the COVID crisis hit, Epic went around and asked each health system, uh, each of their clients, uh, if they would be willing to share their data for analysis by Epic. And my understanding is that a lot of uh, institutions signed up for this because it was a crisis situation and everybody felt compelled to help, help. And Epic now has been analyzing these data and putting these results up on their website, ehrn.org. Now here's an example. Uh, this was posted on May 8th on the EHRN and the post focuses on looking at obesity and COVID-19. And the post says that they pooled data from 31 health systems. These are voluntarily, these are health systems who volunteered their data to Epic uh, representing 300 hospitals that span 18 states and cover 136 million patients. I mean, this is, this is power that Epic has. It's amazing power. Um, and, and, and these 300 hospitals have all empowered Epic to do this. And so in this little research blurb, they go on to say that in this sample of 119,000 or so COVID-19 positive patients, 79% had a BMI documented in their EHR. And patients who were admitted to the hospital were more likely to have a BMI recorded, 92%, than patients who were not admitted, 68%. And among those COVID-19 positive patients with a documented BMI, 48% of these were obese. So this is amazing. Epic can aggregate all this data and very quickly look at these trends and patterns. Um, now, the fact that Epic is conducting these studies and publishing these results online and without peer review is really interesting. And I'm sure the lack of peer review of these studies is gonna generate a lot of discussion among the biomedical research community. And a question I have is whether we need national data sharing consortium at all. Why not just share data through Epic? Um, but uh, that's a good discussion topic for another day. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, another topic, uh, healthcare IT news is reporting that US Democrats in Congress have introduced new legislation called the Public Health Emergency Privacy Act. Um, it would forbid companies from using COVID-19 COVID data 
they collect for discriminatory, unrelated, or intrusive purposes. It further aims to prevent the potential misuse of health data by government agencies with no role in public health. This seems like a really good idea because everyone is so compelled to share their data and do everything we can as a community to figure out you know, who's at high risk for severe disease and who's at risk for hospitalization and who's at risk for death. And so I think you know, the goodwill is pushing everyone to share data, but we generally do worry about privacy and security um, related to health data because there, you know, while many of us have goodwill, there are some others, uh, some bad actors out there who might do something negative. So I think it's a good idea that, that this uh, legislation is put out and especially in this pandemic era of rapid data sharing, it's really important. Yeah, I agree, Marilyn. I don't know all the details about this Privacy Act, but uh, on, on the at face value, it seems like a good idea. And there, there are a lot of companies rushing to get their hands on COVID data from EHRs and what they're going to do with that and what that means for privacy and security is, is uh, something we all need to keep our eye on. Okay, on uh, the lighter side, it is graduation season and college students everywhere are participating in virtual graduations. And I was really excited to see that the University of California, Berkeley created a virtual campus in Minecraft and other universities have done this too. We, we saw uh, a couple weeks ago, a group of Penn students recreated the Penn campus uh, in Minecraft. Um, but what's I think unique about Berkeley is that they are hosting their graduation ceremonies there in Minecraft. I just thought this was so insanely cool. Um, and they're calling the virtual campus Blockly. Um, and there's a link in the show notes where you can get more information about this if you're interested. Okay, moving on. Um, this is the 60th anniversary this year of the ALGOL 60 programming language that blazed a path for modern structural programming languages. Uh, ALGOL 60, if you're not familiar with it, most notably introduced uh, nested functions. You can have functions nested within functions. Uh, ALGOL stands for the algorithmic language, and we have a link to an article in the register about the 60th birthday. Um, so take a look uh, if you're interested. And um, also, last time uh, we mentioned the passing of the popular Princeton mathematician, uh, Dr. John Conway. And I think I noted when we discussed his passing last time that um, I had seen him give a lecture on the mathematics of knots in the 1990s when I was a graduate student at the University of Mich uh, Michigan. Um, I, I really remember his lecture being very entertaining uh, and mesmerizing. And he, uh, he gave a live demo of making and unmaking knots using mathematics uh, right there with audience participation. He had these big pieces of rope that he used to make knots. Uh, it was really cool. So um, just today, I saw a Quantum Magazine article about a University of Texas Austin graduate student named Lisa Piccarillo, who solved one of Conway's 50-year-old math problems in a week after hearing it for the first time. So she, she literally heard, heard about this math problem, said, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if some of the methods I've been working on will apply to this. Within a week, she had cracked this 50-year-old math problem. 
and was telling a professor about it. And the professor went bananas and was like, oh my God, you have to publish that. You know, and she had no clue just how big of an impact this was going to have. So she wrote it up and got it published in the Annals of Mathematics, which is one of their, one of the top mathematics journals. And um, long story short, she starts July 1st as a new tenure track assistant professor of mathematics at MIT. So uh, nice job, um, Lisa. And uh, that was, a, I think, a really great story. So there's a link in the show notes to this story about her and her mathematics problem in, uh, in the show notes. That's so cool. It'll be fun to watch kind of how her career goes, because if she was able to do that as, as a graduate student, I'm sure she's going to be coming out with some amazing things to come. Wow. That's well, awesome. they, well, they always say that mathematicians do their best work when they're young, right? The, <laughs> so this is, this is her window of time, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Um, another item, Health Tech Magazine has a nice management piece on the growing demand for chief nursing information informatics officers or CNIOs. They define the CNIO as a senior executive who helps set the strategy for the use of technology, data, and evidence-based information systems to enhance clinical workflows and improve patient outcomes. The CNIO model has been around for 25 years, but it has a new spotlight in this pandemic era, um, given the reliance that health systems have right now on telemedicine and other technologies for remotely engaging patients. Um, there's a lot of tracking of patients around the system, you know, as they try to have certain areas kind of COVID or infection free. So this article, it's, it's a good one. And especially for uh, people in the nursing field or the nursing informatics field uh, to keep an eye on as a, as a potential growth opportunity. Yeah, I learned a lot about reading this article. And um, I don't think we have a CNIO here at Penn, but something we should uh, probably explore. Yep. Okay, for our final news item, we wanted to mention a paper that just came out in JAMA yesterday uh, on May 18th, uh, calling for a national health IT infrastructure to deal with COVID-19 and other national, similar national crises. Uh, the lead author is our friend Dean Siddig from UT Houston with his co-author Hardeep Singh. And the paper covers uh, a few important topics. And I think this is uh, well worth reading. Uh, first, they question how the COVID-19 crisis will impact current expectations for privacy and confidentiality, which we were just talking about. Uh, you know, are we as a society willing to give up our privacy for more effective crisis response? It's a good ethical question. Second, they make the case that the U.S. health system is overdue, and I'm quoting here, overdue for a real-time technology-driven surveillance and reporting infrastructure to respond effectively to public health emergencies. Um, and, you know, this certainly seems possible given the widespread adoption of EHRs. Third, they discuss robust information capture. They specifically discuss the legal and social barriers that limit information collection and exchange. Fourth, uh, they list five ways in which we could benefit from a national IT infrastructure. Uh, these include more accurate estimates of disease burden and the resources used to tackle the disease, uh, identification of better therapies, real-time health emergency data to inform actions such as social distancing, uh, they mentioned contact tracing, 
and uh, they mentioned national uh, surveillance. Uh, so next uh, in their, uh, their main points, uh, they call for bipartisan and diverse governance to build trust. And finally, they end the piece with uh, some difficult decisions that need to be made now. They say, and I quote, given the severity and immediacy of the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. should no longer rely on outdated laws, social norms, or potentially inaccurate modalities to obtain timely, accurate, and reliable health information essential to save lives. So I think this is a really interesting piece. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. I think it's well worth your time to read. Uh, there's a lot to think about here, and I'm sure it will be heavily discussed. Um, I think all the, all, everything they mentioned will be heavily discussed in the coming years as we uh, hopefully get beyond the pandemic and have some time to reflect on what we did right, what we did wrong, and how we can prepare better, at least from an informatics and health IT perspective, uh, for the next crisis. And I'll uh, have a link to the JAMA article in the show notes. And uh, that's it for our uh, news today. Um, and we will move on to listener feedback. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. One of our bits of listener feedback this week that we wanted to report is from our friend Philip Payne from Twitter. He tweeted, out for our morning walk and listening to the BMIR podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Great episode on how informatics can respond to COVID-19. Thanks for listening, Philip, and uh, we look forward to having you on as a co-host sometime in the future. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, our paper is an interpretable mortality prediction model for COVID-19 patients. It was published on May 14th in the journal Nature Machine Intelligence by Yan et al. Jason will present the paper. Thanks, Marilyn. Uh, this is a timely paper that analyzes 485 COVID-19 patients from Wuhan, China. And this is a, this is a group of scientists. The authors are from Wuhan. Uh, and the focus of the paper is on identifying biomarkers of disease mortality. So that's what they're trying to predict. And the clinical goals to identify those patients that should receive the highest level of medical attention because they're at the highest risk of mortality. So they use data that were collected from patients seen in Wuhan hospitals in January and February of this year. 375 patients seen before February 18th were used as a detection data set. Uh, of these, 375, 201 recovered from the disease while 174 died. And then they also have a set of 110 patients that were seen after February 18th that they used as a replication or validation data set to test their models on. So the EHR data they studied included age, contact history, symptoms, survival, 
And they had about 10 laboratory tests that included things like lactase dehydrogenase, C-reactive protein, sodium, chlorine, eosinophils, monocytes, albumin, et cetera. So they used, uh, they did a machine learning analysis on this data to identify biomarkers of mortality, and they used XGBoost uh, as uh, their machine learning method of choice to identify biomarkers predictive of mortality. XGBoost, if you don't know, uses boosting to predict outcomes, basically using an ensemble of decision trees. So it's an ensembling method kind of like random forest, but it, it does some tricks and is a bit more powerful than random forest. Um, they used 100 rounds of five-fold cross-validation on, uh, on the data and reported accuracy, precision, recall, and a few other uh, quality measures. Uh, they were able to achieve an area under the ROC curve on the validation data set, the 110 samples that I mentioned, uh, of about 95% using just three features, lactase dehydrogenase, um, lymphocytes, and C-reactive protein. Now, this, this is a pretty simple paper, but what I like about it is that they took uh, this machine learning results, this XGBoost uh, model, which is a collection of decision trees, an ensemble and used it to develop a clinically actionable decision tree. And they called this an interpretable tree. So what they did was they took the three features that were identified by XGBoost and they basically built a decision tree that they knew a clinician uh, could understand. And, and this is important because clinicians want machine learning models that are understandable, that are trustworthy, and importantly, that are actionable, something that you could actually put into the clinic and develop a clinical decision support uh, for. So I thought, um, and, and if you look at their decision tree, it's pretty simple. Um, so at the, at the top of the tree is the uh, lactase dehydrogenase, um, and um, they have a decision whether it's less than or greater than 365 units. Then uh, if you're greater than that, then they predict death. Uh, and there were a higher number of patients that died. Uh, and if you're less than that, then there's another branch in the tree for C-reactive protein. If you're less than 41 or so um, units of C-reactive protein, then you're likely to survive. If you're less than that, then they have another decision point here based on lymphocytes. If you're uh, greater than 14.7% lymphocytes, then you're likely to die. If not, then you're likely to survive. So it's a really pretty simple decision tree. It was pretty easy for me to just say that. So you can get a, get a sense for um, how clinically actionable this might be. Uh, you can imagine a clinician going down this kind of like a flow chart saying, yes, yes, no, yes, uh, et cetera. So um, this, of course, is a very timely paper. Um, I think the results are interesting. Um, you know, the machine learning is pretty straightforward. There's nothing really special about the machine learning. This is a, XGBoost is a very commonly used method. They did cross-validation. Um, um, but what I really like uh, about the paper is their focus on interpretation and translation of the result, that they took this they took the machine learning result, which was a good result, and then really tried to use it to, to make something that was clinically actionable. So they took that extra step 
which is probably why it got published uh, in this Nature Journal, both the timeliness and the clinical actionability of it. Um, so, um, but there are some limitations by many EHR standards. This is a, a small data set. These are very small sample sizes. Um, and uh, they looked at a very limited set of EHR data. I mean, only 10 laboratory tests. So this is a very small fraction of perhaps all the clinical data that's available for these patients. And uh, you can imagine that given the small sample size that uh, it may not generalize to other parts of China or to other countries around the world. But anyway, the, uh, the paper claims that the data are available. So you can see if you can get your hands on it, it might make an interesting data set to, uh, for teaching purposes or to run your own machine learning algorithms on. I think it would be hard to improve upon this result because the area into the curve was so, uh, so large. Um, but it would be interesting, for example, to try to replicate, uh, take this decision tree and try to replicate these results in other data sets uh, around the world. Yeah, I thought this was a great paper. Um, one of the, the main things that I got most excited about, even less, I mean, yes, I thought the interpretability part was great, but I liked their emphasis on using data-driven machine learning models. Um, one of the things that I, I feel a little bit worried and frustrated about in the scientific literature that I'm seeing in the COVID-19 space is the, the sense that we're basically very quickly iterating over all of the um, epidemiologic hypotheses and publishing them quickly with very small sample sizes. So kind of like when um, back in the 90s, there were kind of a whole series of papers for a couple of years about carcinogen risk. Um, coffee is protective against cancer, coffee causes cancer. Uh, spinach is protective, now spinach is risk. The, and it's just, there's kind of small sample size hypothesis tests that flood the literature with these kind of, this is bad, this is good. This is, and I feel like that's happening a little bit with COVID where this medication is protective. This medication is risk. This comorbid condition is protective. This one is risk, and the same one is risk in another paper in the same week. What I like here is this idea, and this is certainly something I've been thinking about, and it goes back to probably episode one of the podcast, or episode zero, actually, when we talked about doing data-driven phenotype mining in the EHR. I really want to see us use methods like this on large data sets where we don't have to have our hypotheses or our preconceived notions about which comorbidities are important, which labs are important, which medications are important, but could we let the data and machine learning methods tell us what the heterogeneous subgroups of patients are that we could then use to do more sophisticated statistical and hypothesis testing? Because I believe that COVID-19 is extremely heterogeneous. I don't think it's gonna be a, a simple decision tree of three factors. It's probably kind of in different comorbidity groups, there will be decision trees that are important based on some other you know, pre-existing conditions that go with that comorbid condition and a couple of labs and maybe a medication. But this idea of using data-driven machine learning to start to tease that apart instead of 
really smart people coming up with a list of hypotheses. And basically from data set to data set, we reject the null, we accept the null on the same hypothesis across two data sets. And it's because they're too small. So I hope that people read this and get excited about data-driven machine learning models as opposed to very basic, you know, one variable at a time hypothesis testing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I really see that as the value of this paper. I mean, my best guess is this result's not going to generalize to other populations. I mean, it's it's very unlikely, especially given how small the sample size was and that this isn't, you know, an Asian population. It probably won't generalize to non-Asian populations. So, but I think you're right. I think I think hopefully the value of this paper is that it will stimulate ideas for how machine learning can can be used to study COVID nineteen. I think the possibilities are are absolutely endless. And while you were talking, I you know I I had an idea that you know Epic could look at this very quickly, right, with their uh, with their research network and post one of their little mini reports on this model. Uh, maybe maybe that's something a role that Epic could play is to validate some of these results that are in the that come out in the literature. Take this decision tree, run it through the Epic data. Surely all this data is there, right? They have a they have a sample size of a hundred thousand COVID positive patients. Uh, they must know whether they died or not, and uh, they probably have these lab, same lab tests. Uh, so it would be very easy to replicate it and post a little. A little one of their little non-peer-reviewed notes about it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, take a look at the paper, um, and we'll have a link uh, to it uh, in the show notes. Now on to our software discussion. Each episode, we hope to discuss a useful open-source software package. Today, our selection is Scikit-Learn. I'm going to introduce the topic. Scikit-Learn is likely the best known and most widely used machine learning library. It started in 2007 as a summer coding project and made its first public release in 2010. Um, it's completely open source and coded in Python. Uh, and it includes pretty much any machine learning method you might want to use. It has dozens and dozens of algorithms for supervised classification, uh, also does regression for continuously distributed endpoints. Uh, it also includes unsupervised methods for cluster analysis, for example. Uh, and it includes a whole bunch of other algorithms and tools that are useful for machine learning. For example, it has several dimensionality reduction methods, such as principal components. So if you want to do a PCA analysis before you do your machine learning, you could do that with scikit-learn. Um, there are multiple methods for model selection. You could do like a grid search to choose parameters. Um, it has a bunch of different evaluation methods, such as cross-validation that are built in. And finally, there are uh, several pre-processing algorithms that you might want to use to normalize your data or transform it in some way. Uh, it comes with a nice API, so you can, you can write, um, you can call it from your Python software. That makes it uh, very versatile. Uh, we use this library all the time in my own research lab and highly recommend it, especially if you work in, in Python. And uh, the docu documentation's outstanding. They have training modules, um, et cetera. Marilyn, do you guys use Scikit-Learn? Yeah, I would second that. We use it all the time. Um, it's a great way for trainees to start to learn about machine learning. Um, I think it's really useful in courses 
for uh, starting to teach people about using machine learning. Uh, we use it, you know, there are times we want to compare and contrast a, a series of different machine learning methods, and they're all in scikit-learn. So instead of trying to piecemeal together lots of different open source packages, we can just use this one package to do the full kind of comparative analysis that we want to do of a particular set of methods. So yeah, I, I can't recommend scikit-learn enough. So if you know some Python and want to get into machine learning, this is a, a good way to do so. The webpage is scikit-learn.org, uh, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Now on to our open data discussion. Each episode, we hope to discuss a useful source of open data. Today, our selection is CORD19, the COVID-19 open research data set. Marilyn is going to introduce this resource. Thanks, Jason. CORD19 is an amazing free resource of more than 63,000 scholarly articles about the novel coronavirus for use by the global research community. This was developed by the Semantic Scholar Team at the Allen Institute for AI in collaboration with leading research institutes. Their stated goal is to provide researchers with free and open tools and data sets to find new insights about the novel coronavirus. A link is provided in the show notes. And I would say to keep an eye on this. I mean, it's amazing to think that there are already 63,000 scholarly articles about the novel coronavirus for them to aggregate. And that number is just gonna be going up every day. Yeah, this seems like a goldmine for natural language processing. Yeah, have to definitely have to check this out. Absolutely. Now on to our biomedical informatics conference update. Uh, Marilyn's going to say a few words about the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing. Yes, thank you. Um, so I am one of the organizers of the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing. And the organizing committee just had a conversation last week about PSB 2021, which is scheduled to be held in January of 2021. And after some deliberation, we decided that we are moving ahead with the meeting as planned. It is hard to know in the face of the pandemic kind of what things are gonna look like in January of 2021 and whether travel to Hawaii will be possible or not, but we are going to move forward with plans and hope that we get to be there. Um, I, for one, am really hopeful that we can go. I've been going to Hawaii every January for, gosh, the last, what, 19 years of my life or something like that, uh, other than the two years that I took off when I had kids. So uh, it's something I look forward to every year, and I am really hopeful that the pandemic is in a situation at that point that travel to Hawaii is possible. So the meeting is on as planned, the call for papers is on the webpage, which is psb.stanford.edu. Papers are due on August 3rd, 2020. This is an absolute deadline. So if you are not familiar with PSB, we are not one of the conferences that rolls our deadline uh, forward. We have an absolute deadline and it has to do with kind of hitting all of our review milestones and submission to uh, the online uh, manuscript process. So August 3rd is the deadline. Please submit. We have a set of great uh, sessions this year, really exciting topics, things around big data analytics and women's health, 
trustworthy biomedical data, pattern recognition. It, it's a really great set of topics. So I hope we get a lot of great papers. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is how to give a great scientific talk. Marilyn will introduce the topic and review 10 tips that appeared in a 2018 career piece in Nature by Nick Fleming. All right. I love this paper, and uh, I think there are a set of additional things you could add to this list, but I thought this captures them pretty well and is a great place to look at um, what you do whenever you're preparing for a talk and giving a talk. So I'll just run through these. Number one, be yourself. People relate to and connect with authenticity. Number two, prepare, practice, and perfect. Get rid of those crutch words like um and you know. A great way to see if you do this or not is to record yourself. So during one of your practices, record yourself doing it and count how many times you say um and you know, and you will get annoyed with yourself if you do it a lot. Being quiet and just pausing rather than saying um is definitely better. Number three, describe what you're telling us. Use vivid words to help the audience paint a picture. Here, I think it's vivid words, not complicated words. The goal when you're giving a talk is to tell people things and describe it in a way that's simple so that they understand it. I think you have to assume most audiences are of varied background. And so vivid words that are clear and descriptive are great. Uh, number four, vocal variety. Change up your tone, volume, and pitch to keep the audience engaged. Nobody likes listening to a monotonous, one tone in the speaker who just drones on. It's terrible. You have to have emotion and feeling when you're speaking. Yeah, I uh, um, give lectures occasionally for medical students, and I got, you know, medical students are brutal, absolutely brutal in their course evaluations. And I remember one time getting uh, an evaluation back and one of the students said I was too monotonous, too monotone in my presentation. I was like, what? <laughs> Ouch. I've never thought that when you gave a talk. Yeah. But like I said, they're brutal. They are. But it is important. And you know it as an audience member when talks are monotonous, when the speaker's voice doesn't change, it's boring. Even if they're saying really exciting things, it's hard to be engaged. Number five, study the greats. Think about the speakers that you really enjoy and watch what they do. There are thousands of free talks on YouTube, lots of topics. Watch some and see what do the great speakers do and try to emulate them. Yeah, I like this one a lot. And it, it kind of relates to um, a previous conversation we had on the podcast about I think when we talked about leadership skills, right, and, and watching and learning from people you think are good leaders, and I think the same applies here. People, when you get, when you're listening to a talk and you're like, oh man, this is amazing, and you're on the edge of your seat, you know, stop and, and sort of say to yourself, all right, what is this person doing? Why am I so engaged in this? Why am I enjoying this presentation so much? Why am I learning so much? What is this person doing, and can I emulate that? Number six. Get feedback. A practice audience can help you get the bugs out. This is something that I do with the members of my lab 
when they're giving talks, we practice in front of the lab. They give the talk, we go back through and critique slide by slide. And I think sometimes it's excruciating for them, but in the end, they end up giving great talks. And I've gotten feedback from other faculty. They've said, boy, your students or your postdocs give great talks. And it is because they practice in front of the lab, sometimes more than once. And we critique the hell out of it and give them so much feedback before they go in front of an audience. Number seven is appearance. If you look good, you'll feel good. And that will help you give a great talk. And I, 150% believe this. This is something I do. Even if I'm just going into a meeting and I have to give a pitch about something or present something, I dress up because there is something about feeling more confident and powerful when you're dressed up. Yeah, I, I agree. I like this one a lot. And uh, I think this is something I've certainly taken to heart over the years. In fact, Marilyn, early in our careers, you used to tease me because I always wore a crisp new blue shirt when I gave talks. And, uh, you know, I think that's true. You, you know, wear things that make you feel good, that, that you think you look good. And everybody's got that favorite shirt or favorite tie or favorite coat or favorite pair of pants or whatever, favorite shoes. And, you know, wear those things that make you, make you look, that make you think, you know, you look good and, and that gives you confidence. Yep. I totally agree. And now I think people, some of my friends will chuckle because I like nine times out of 10, I wear a dress when I give a talk. I used to wear pants and I just noticed that I feel more confident and more dressed up when I'm in a dress. And so I almost always wear a dress when I'm giving a talk. Number eight, pauses. They give the audience time to think and help them engage. This is really important, especially when you have a ton of material. When speakers plow through all the material and it's fact and fact and slide and slide, it is overwhelming for the audience. And more than likely about halfway through, they start picking up their phones and doing something else because they're exhausted. They cannot take the tsunami of information. You have to have pauses and give people time to think, reflect on what you just said, digest it a little bit. And so those pauses, while as a speaker, they might feel awkward, they're super important for your audience. Number nine is body language. Use gestures and make use of the space to help you deliver your message. When I'm given the opportunity to either stand at a podium and use the mic or wear a lavalier, or carry a mic, I will always wear one or carry a mic rather than stand behind a podium. I wanna be able to move, especially if I notice the audience is kind of getting sleepy or they look like they're not engaging, I will move around the room. I'll walk across, I'll walk down to them, get closer to them and be more interactive. And you can't do that when you're behind a podium. And then number 10, be confident. Use your face, your body language, and your stance to own the stage. I remind my students about this all the time, that no one knows your talk better than you. No one knows your data better than you or your method or your software. And so you have to own the stage and be confident about what you're presenting. And that gets people excited about it. If you seem meek or not confident, that is when the vultures come out and they start poking at what you're presenting. But when you are confident and you present with confidence, 
makes a huge difference in how the audience receives it. Yeah, I agree. Confidence is so, so very important. And it's, it's, it's something that's hard when you're get young and getting started and certainly something you, you get better at as uh, you get more experience. So don't get too frustrated if you're not feeling confident. It'll come with time. But all of those things, some of which we've mentioned that you can do to build confidence, like dressing, you know, in, in wearing clothes that make you feel confident uh, can help. And confidence, confidence, um, you know, the audience is, is more likely to listen to you and, and um, be interested in what you're saying if you're, if you're presenting it in a, in a confident uh, manner. So, um, you know, and I, I agree with you about getting out from behind the podium. This is something I do. Um, and that's, that's a, you know, an action that, that helps with confidence, you know, get out from behind the podium, stand in the middle of the room, stand in front of the audience and look them in the eye. I try to make eye contact with as many people as I can look around the room as you're talking. And that helps um, helps you present uh, with an air of confidence. Even if you're not feeling confident, that action alone helps you appear more confident, which can have, uh, can have uh, the same effect. Um, something that wasn't mentioned, um, I think these are great tips. I agree with you, Marilyn. These are all fantastic tips. Uh, something that wasn't mentioned is personal anecdotes, which is something I like. And I've found over the years that when I have a personal story to share, to make a point or back up something I've said in a talk, that the audience really responds to that. They really like those personal stories. It helps you connect with your audience. And I know, Marilyn, you do a great job at this. You know, you make a point and then tell a quick 30-second story. You do that a lot. And I think it really helps you connect to your audience. Um, Thanks, Jason. Yeah, I do. And I do it because I enjoy when other people do it. So it's one of those things I learned by example. I would give one more. And this is something that you taught me when I was a graduate student giving a talk. And I think I did this and you corrected me afterwards. And I now tell all of my students and uh, I even think it to myself sometimes. And that is, do not apologize to your audience. Do not say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, this slide is fuzzy. I'm sorry if you can't read this. I'm sorry if you can't see this. You made the slides. Don't apologize, don't show the slide. If people are not gonna be able to see it and you're apologetic about it, change the slide and don't show it. Instead, maybe you have to show it because there is something useful in it. And there are times that I know people in the back can't read it. So I don't say, I'm sorry this table is small and you can't see it. I will say, I realize that you can't read what's on here. Reading the numbers isn't the point. The point that I want you to take away from this slide is X. And so I don't apologize if it's small, even if it's fuzzy. So there are times that the slide gets jumbled. There's a weird Mac to Windows issue. Something happens and I will notice it and I will catch myself wanting to apologize. And I'm like, no, Jason said, don't say I'm sorry. <laughs> so I will sometimes just say, well, the slides didn't look like that on my computer. What you should see is this. And so without just saying, I'm sorry. And I agree with you when you taught me that it, 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 it stuck with me 20 years later because it, it tells the audience that you weren't prepared or that you're deferential to them as opposed to just owning, owning your slides, owning what your experience is and what you're showing them. And yes, sometimes it doesn't go perfectly, but 
I don't know, apologizing just, it sets the wrong tone, I think. Well, I actually learned that from Edward Tufte, and that is a Tufteism. Uh, don't apologize to your audience because uh, as we were just talking about, confidence is so important for an audience learning, listening to you and taking you seriously. And as soon as you apologize, you lose them. You, you break down that confidence and you're, you're looking smaller in their eyes when you apologize. You know, if you apologize for having a cold or apologize, like you said, apologize for a slide that didn't come out the way you wanted it. Um, never apologize because it, it erodes, it erodes away that confidence that is so important for engaging, uh, engaging an audience. Um, something else, um, you know, that I, um, do as I've progressed in my career, my talks are now increasingly figure based. So if you look at one of my talks, I have very few words on my slides. Uh, in fact, I have talks that are like 95% images now almost. And so, uh, and I think that helps exude confidence too. the fact that you can put up an image and stand there and talk about it for 60 seconds without, uh, without your crib notes, right? exudes confidence, right? That you can just talk, you can just stand up there and talk and the slide and the, the images are really more for the audience to, you know, engage them with something visual. Um, and of course, when you're young, you, you, you know, you feel like you need the words on the slide in case you forget something you're going to say. And, and, you know, that's understandable, but as you progress in your career and build your confidence, you can, uh, talk uh, more freely about subjects without needing uh, the words. In fact, one of my students recently said, could you send me a couple example talks that you've given so I can get some ideas for this talk I'm uh, putting together? I said, sure. So I started looking at my talks and I realized they were just all images. And I realized it wasn't really going to be helpful to the student because the student would have no idea what I was going to say from looking <laughs> at the slides themselves. Um, so anyway, I think that's something to work toward is more images, less words um, when you're giving talks. Yeah, Jason, I do the same thing now. And I've had my students then request a meeting with me and say, can you tell me what you said when you showed this? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't remember exactly what I said, but something like this. So no, I think that's another great tip. So uh, as we said at the beginning, this was from a, this particular list of 10 items is from a nature paper and we will have a link to it in the show notes. Show notes. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Marilyn, do you have any closing remarks? Well, this was a great conversation today and I really enjoyed, this was our second recording from the metaverse and I think it's gone even better this time. Um, I would just say that I hope that folks are learning from some of the things we're talking about here, some of the, the training strategies, some of the informatics ideas. I know that we're living in this unprecedented time of this pandemic and everything seems upside down. But as Jason and I both mentioned earlier, you know, there are some really great things that are happening in the context of this for informatics researchers. There's a lot of opportunity that wasn't there before for different data sharing and different collaborations, time to be creative. Um, I'm really trying to get outside now that it's spring and the weather is getting nice, uh, that fresh air can really help kind of spark that creativity. And so I'm trying as much as I can to use this time to, to be creative and come up with new research ideas so that 
you know, when things get back to the grind, which at some point, you know, things will settle, there will be a new normal, we don't know what it'll look like, but it'll be more normal than what we're experiencing now. I want to have a big list of things that I've come up with and creative ideas so that I can do them once time gets a little more, more stabilized and, and back to a regular pattern. Jason, how about you? Yeah, well, first of all, um, I, I agree. I think this has been a great episode and um, it's been fun to talk through these different topics with you. And, you know, as we learn more about COVID-19, something that really stands out for me is the extreme heterogeneity of the disease. And, and you, you mentioned this earlier as well. You know, some people never have a cough or sniffle, sniffle from the infection and others decline rapidly and die with multiple organs affected. It's, it's an incredibly... Uh, serious, but also from a scientific point of view, really interesting disease. And I think, uh, you know, this really interests me from a machine learning point of view. I think there are a lot of opportunities to use machine learning and other computational methods, things like network science, to understand the complexity of the, the infection. Uh, I think there's a huge role for unsupervised clustering methods to identify subgroups of patients. We have a lot of interesting work to do as the electronic health record data becomes available and the patient numbers uh, climb. Um, and, um, you know, these patient subgroups, this heterogeneity has got to be important for the treatment of this disease. I think it's going to be critical for us to understand um, all, all the nuances of the disease, all the heterogeneity to um, design, uh, design treatments. And, you know, if ever there was a disease that was, um, you know, COVID-19 COVID may end up being a poster child for precision medicine. Maybe, maybe this is the disease where precision medicine will finally really shine and, and become a mainstay because uh, given the heterogeneity, I think precision medicine is going to be required uh, for this for this complex disease. So anyway, um, uh, I think it's been a great episode. Uh, thanks to all of you for joining us. Uh, we uh, hope uh, you leave us having learned a few things or with inspiration for new research projects or career decisions. And as always, we would love to hear comments uh, about this episode or ideas for future topics. Uh, be well. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find some time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.